relinquishing ourselves. Welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard and not be satisfied with just a little empty religion in life as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. Our series includes family, friends, and others who are influenced by the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. Hey, it's good to have you with us again today. Or maybe it's your first time. Welcome, either way. Well, as we normally do as we get together, we have two Gateway to Joy programs. We'll end one series and begin another. But they're on similar topics. It's the fifth in a five-part series on a living sacrifice and the first in a series called What Shall I Give Him? We'll be joined by Rachel Saint. Rachel spent many years living with the Alka, or, well, Ronnie people. From a 1962 album on the Alka story, Rachel will tell us about her friend Dayuma, said to be the first Christian convert among the Alka people. Were there some who were still suspicious of these outsiders? We'll hear about that, too. First, though, let's wrap up our short five-part series called A Living Sacrifice, relinquishing ourselves to help us understand eternal truth. She'll point us to letters and a story from her family as we think about surrendering to the will of our teacher. It is the Lord who goes before you, He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not be afraid or dismayed. That promise given thousands of years ago by Moses to Joshua is for you and me today, for all who are willing to follow the Lord. The verse that I've just given you is from Deuteronomy 31.8, and this is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking with you again today about a living sacrifice. And I'm aware that this is a heavy topic, and I'm going to give you some illustrations, one from my grandson, two from letters that I get. And I've been reading a good many letters to you recently, and I'm glad to be able to do that. I think that a lot of the things that I say are so, shall I say, heavy, difficult to understand. They require a mature spiritual understanding unless they're illustrated in 20th century terms. And that's why I'm so grateful for the letters that you write, because very often they're right down my alley. So often as I'm preparing talks, exactly the letter that I need to illustrate the talk that I'm preparing comes in the mail. And so I'm going to give you two letters, but first of all I want to tell you about my grandson, Walter, and I hope I don't talk about my grandchildren too much, but the oldest of the seven grandchildren is Walter, Walter Shepard III, and he teaches swimming. He's an excellent swimmer. He's on the polo team in his high school in Southern California. And one of his pupils last summer was a two-year-old. Walter said that he spent 10 minutes of his lesson time trying to convince this two-year-old that if he were to fall into the water, it's not an extremely healthy idea for him to sit on the bottom of the pool with a big grin on his face, which at this time he does. Now that child is going to learn nothing unless he surrenders himself to the will of his teacher. And that will is for the little boy's good. And so it is with God. You and I will not learn 
the lessons that God wants to teach us. We will not advance in the spiritual life without surrendering ourselves to the will of our teacher. Hebrews 12 says, God corrects us all our days for our own benefit to teach us his holiness. Now, obviously, no chastening seems pleasant at the time. It is, in fact, unpleasant. Yet when it is all over, we can see that it has produced the fruit of real goodness in the characters of those who have accepted it in the right spirit. That's the end of the quotation from Hebrews 12. Now there's the crucial condition. Acceptance in the right spirit. One of the aspects of being a living sacrifice is acceptance. God gives us things which we don't think of as gifts necessarily. When I was single for all those years waiting for Jim Elliott, I had a gift that I did not really relish. It was the gift of singleness. I had certainly never thought about singleness very much until I fell in love with somebody and wanted to be anything but single. And I certainly had never thought of singleness as a gift. But in 1 Corinthians 7, I am told that marital status is a gift. If you're married, thank God for the gift of marriage. If you're single, thank God for the gift of singleness. If you're a widow, and twice I have had to learn this lesson, thank God for widowhood. This is part of the acceptance that is involved in the principle of making my body a living sacrifice. I have to accept the circumstances of my life. Now I have two letters here, one from a single woman who is happy and one from the wife of an alcoholic and adulterous husband. She's happy too. Why? I think you'll get the point in both letters. The first, the single woman, she says, I'm a single female, 32 years old, and have never been married as yet. But this area of singleness has been committed to the Lord, and I know if it is his will, he will provide that special mate for me in his right time. In the meantime, he is my faithful companion, and I know he will take care of me and direct me as he knows best. I was very blessed by your program on singleness, and it helped me understand my single state much better. Since that program aired, I do not question my single status. I know he is in control. I ordered your book, A Path Through Suffering, to give me some insight on suffering and how the Lord uses it in our lives. I have suffered much over the years, but God has been great and has truly blessed me in so many ways that I often become tearful when I think of how he has blessed. But with those blessings has come much pain and spiritual growth. I come from a broken family. My dad was an alcoholic. My life has seen immorality. I was abused from age 8 to 19, mostly emotionally rather than sexually, though that existed as well. I was saved at age 19, and what an experience my life has been since then. The Lord delivered me out of the immorality and abuse. I went through a time of one and a half years of intense counseling in my late 20s as I had become very depressed and suicidal, but my Lord reached down and showed me a more perfect love than any I have ever known before or will know until glory. One of the greatest things I learned from my counselor, the Lord provided her a special gift free of charge, was that I had to change my view of God. I was seeing him on the same level as man, and there is no comparison, for my Lord is far greater 
and loves me more than anyone in this life ever can. Once I was able to see that, then the Lord healed my broken spirit and life and is making something beautiful of my life. He has given me a lifetime verse, which I have found very appropriate, Philippians 4, 13, which I have claimed often. My life is dedicated to Jesus Christ, and I know he will never forsake me. I don't know what the future holds for me, but I know who holds the future. Elizabeth, if at any time you can use this letter to help or encourage someone else, I hope you will. It is amazing what God can do if we but let him work. Thank you for your testimony and witness for Jesus Christ daily through Gateway to Joy. And then this other letter from the wife whose husband is alcoholic and adulterous. She says, I've never written you until now, but I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to share some of my experiences with you in the hopes that some radio listeners might be helped by the Lord. This year is my 20th year in Christ and soon to be my 26th wedding anniversary with the same man. But yet a new man, over 20 years of my marriage, was very unhappy. I searched for Christ in all the wrong places, and sadly enough, I was a lost and baptized church member and was well on my way to becoming a prostitute when the Lord saved me in 1971. The Lord transformed my life by his marvelous grace and has been with me over 20 years of living with an adulterous and alcoholic husband. I imagine I've cried a river of tears over the years. But God's grace has been sufficient to carry me through and the verse that sustained me was in Psalms that says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. And that is the miracle that God has performed in my marriage within the past few years. My circumstance has changed, and even though my husband is still an alcoholic, he is a very wonderful, caring, sensitive man. It had been years since he went to church with me, and for years I had nagged him. But God was patient and kind with me and forgave me, and I found that a soft answer does turn away wrath. So on the day before Mother's Day this year, I told my husband that for Mother's Day, I'd like for him to come to church with me more than anything else. And he looked at me in surprise, and I said, well, I can dream, can't I? And you guessed it, he went. Here recently, we had gotten into it, quote unquote, on a Saturday, and he stormed out saying, I am not going to church with you tomorrow. And I wanted to snap back and say, you weren't going for the right reason anyway, or you would go. But God grabbed my heart and tongue and said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So I kept my mouth shut and was sweet to him when he returned. And there's no way I could respond in this manner without the supernatural power of Christ in my life. So there's another testimony to the supernatural power of Christ. We cannot do it without his help. But never forget that we can do it with his help. To go on with her letter, she says, God blessed my obedience because my husband did go to church with me and he's promised to go with me again this Sunday. I know in my heart that he is very close to a recommitment of his life to Christ. God knows I've recently read The Spirit-Controlled Woman by Beverly LaHaye and I've recently given my all to Christ. Please encourage your listeners that one can serve Christ under any circumstances. For my husband was an alcoholic, adulterous, verbally abusive husband for over 20 years. 
and only being an alcoholic applies to him now. I don't put him down, though, because he is a good father to our two sons and a great husband, and I love him with all my heart today. Is God in the miracle business, one may ask? You betcha, is my reply. Because I am a miracle, our marriage is a miracle, and my husband will be a miracle totally in Christ's perfect time. I've written this poem in honor of our 26th anniversary on June 19th to my dearest husband. Can you believe we've been married for 26 years? Days filled with laughter, heartaches, and tears. There was plenty of sunshine in spite of the rain, a mixture of joy and sorrow and pain. We've both made mistakes and have learned from each one that marriage takes work and it's not all laughter and fun. I stayed by your side when the going got rough, when others would say, haven't you taken enough? I wouldn't listen. I know deep within that to give up on our marriage would be more sorrow and sin. Our love for each other, I believed all along, would only take time to be healthy and strong. So to God I prayed, thy will be done. He answered that prayer and made our lives one. Can you rejoice with that dear wife? I can. What does God want to do in your life? Can you trust him? Well, that wraps up a short series called A Living Sacrifice. That was relinquishing ourselves. Later on, we'll begin another look into sacrifice and giving of ourselves. Well, let me tell you a little bit about missionary Rachel Saint. She came from a family of eight kids. She was the only daughter. Her father was a stained-glass artist, her mother also interested in art. One of her brothers, Nate Saint, was among the five missionaries killed in Operation Alka. He was the pilot. Well, Rachel had a burden to reach the Alka people. One of her friends from the tribe was Dayuma. They actually took a tour of the U.S., appearing at a Billy Graham event, and even on a TV show, Ralph Edwards' This Is Your Life. Back in 1962, there was a record album produced by Nancy Woolnow on the Alka story. Nancy was a missionary herself to Ecuador with HCJB Global. Well, Rachel today is going to tell us more about her friend Dayuma and the time that Dayuma went to meet family members. When Dayuma began to be willing to seek her people to tell them about the Lord, we prayed together that the Lord would show us where they lived and if they lived. And the very first thing that the Lord used to answer that prayer was the photographs that were brought back from Palm Beach, photographs taken by my own brother of Dayuma's own sister, though she didn't know it at the time. She recognized the older woman who was her aunt and thought she recognized the young man. But by that token, she knew that at least some of her family had escaped the spearings of the the hated chief Muipa who was trying to wipe them all out. Dayuma began to face the problem of going back with her aunts. She hated to get involved in the darkness, but finally on the basis of the fact that the Lord Jesus had come to earth for her, left heaven's glory, she was willing to leave the Christian environment in which she'd been living to go back to her people, and the three of them went back alone. In less than a month's time, they had come back to the outside with an invitation for us to go back to the Alka Indians. We arrived there on October 8, 1958, and spent almost two months with Dayuma's family. She saw her mother for the first time in more than 10 years. 
she had the joy of telling them about the living God in heaven and his son, Jesus, who died in exchange for the Alcas. She was the first one to tell them the name of Jesus in their own language, how we rejoiced and how the Lord had led. Rachel Saint, we'll hear more from her later on. Right now, we begin a short series that asks the question, what can we give Jesus? Sometimes there are little sacrifices we make, perhaps every day, but some of those sacrifices are life-changing. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not be afraid or dismayed. That promise given thousands of years ago by Moses to Joshua is for you and me today, for all who are willing to follow the Lord. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking with you today on the subject of what shall I give him? And I hope that you think of that word sacrifice when we're talking about spiritual things, not primarily as pain or loss or deprivation, much less of payment for sin. Christ has already offered the once and forever perfect and complete sacrifice on behalf of all of us. By the way, did you know that? Did you know that Jesus paid it all? There's an old hymn that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless look to thee for grace. That's what it's like. That's what the gospel is about. We're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary, where that sacrifice was made. But if we're going to follow the Lord Jesus, we must walk the same pathway that he walked, insofar as that is possible for us. And there are many ways in which it is much more possible than we imagine. As we learn to walk one step at a time with Jesus, we learn the deeper things, a little bit deeper each day, a little bit more understanding is given to us. It's obedience that opens our eyes. It is the step of obedience that leads to the next step, which is uh, closer to God, one more uh, step of progress in the spiritual life. So when we talk about sacrifice, we're not talking primarily of pain and loss and deprivation or payment for sin, but we are talking about an offering. Now, what is it that we can give to the Lord Jesus? That old hymn that says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And that last line answers the question, what shall I give him? Even if I owned the world, that would be an offering too small unless I were willing to give him my soul, my life, my all, my body. 
Romans 12.1 says that I am to present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as an act of spiritual worship. It amazes me to think that this physical body of mine, which is aging, white, female, tall, Anglo-Saxon, those are the terms in which God chose to have me live, this body, very physical, is to be presented as an act of spiritual worship. You know, this is one of the most wonderful things to me about the Christian faith, the fact that spiritual things work in a physical realm, and physical things have spiritual significance. There's no dichotomy, no separation between body and spirit, no very significant separation. Everything is to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Everything is to be offered to him. My soul, my life, my all, all that I have, all that I do, all that I suffer, and that is a willing relinquishment of my right to myself. Now, the world is telling us very strongly every day in a variety of ways that we have a right to our own bodies, that we have a right to run our own lives. Well, you know, I have found the greatest freedom and joy, may I even say the greatest liberation in the world, by becoming a slave, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, relinquishing my right to myself and turning over to God all that I am and have. I turn it over to him in love, in adoration, and in thanksgiving. Now think of a bride. When a bride comes down the aisle with her eyes fixed on that beloved face of the groom who stands looking so handsome in front of her, her deepest heart's desire is to relinquish her right to herself and surrender to her bridegroom. And that's a picture of the spiritual relationship between us and Christ. Christ is the head of the church, and the church is his bride. He is the bridegroom, the church his bride. And you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ and have surrendered to his lordship, are members of his bride. And so we are turning ourselves over totally to the bridegroom, Christ, just as an ordinary bride turns herself over to her husband. It's not pain. It's not loss. It's not deprivation. It's love and adoration and thanksgiving. And when my heart just bursts with love and adoration and thanksgiving to God, I sometimes ask myself, what do people do who don't know God? Surely every human being must have times when they feel an overwhelming sense of gratitude. But who can they thank? Well, you and I know that everything comes from God, and he is our loving Father, and we can thank him. There's an old word that probably many of you have never heard. It's the word oblation, and oblation means an offering or a sacrifice. We have many notions of sacrifice and oblation from gospel songs, as I've mentioned uh, one of them already when I survey 
the wondrous cross. And I can remember when I was a little child singing, is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? And another one, I surrender all. And I used to puzzle over that one especially because I didn't really quite get the picture as to whether it meant that I was to give my dolls to Jesus. Um, I remember hearing about a little boy who was singing that song and his father heard him muttering under his breath, uh, my all is on the altar, all except my baby bunny. And there's a sense in which the answer is yes, I do offer to him all that I have. But of course, God doesn't expect us to understand all these things when we're just children. He expects us to move one step at a time into a fuller and deeper understanding of the spiritual principle of sacrifice. It is an act of worship, an act of offering back to God everything. A friend of mine who had grown up in a Christian family but had long since moved very far away from the principles that his parents had taught him and had more or less in effect almost become an atheist. And he said that one of the things that brought him back to Christ was just this overwhelming sense of thanksgiving for so many things in his life, so many blessings, and he thought, I felt lost with no one to thank. And then I remembered that it was God. The first act of worship and sacrifice in the Old Testament, in the Bible, is that of Abel when he brought the firstling of his flock. It was accepted because he brought it in faith. His brother Cain brought an offering as well, but apparently, according to Hebrews 11:4, he didn't bring it with the same faith, with the same uh, belief in God, and so his offering was not as acceptable as his brother Abel's, and you may remember the story. He was so jealous and angry with his brother Abel that he killed him. Noah, after he built the ark and was rescued through the flood, his first act after the flood was to build an altar. When Abraham arrived in Shechem, he built an altar under the oak of Morah. And then when he went to a mountain east of Bethel, he built another altar there. So this is a very ancient concept, worship and sacrifice. It is an expression of reverence, of fear, of love. The Bible tells us that we are priests. That's one of the things that the Bible reveals to us, that in Christ we have the position of priests, and a priest's primary function was to offer sacrifice. Well, we're going to be talking more about this idea of what shall I give him, and I hope we'll be able to make it very practical and applicable to your life. Part one in What Shall I Give Him? Worship and Sacrifice. Hey, we heard earlier from Rachel Saint as she talked about her friend Diuma, who was believed to be the first convert to Christianity among the Alka people. We'll recap some of what she just told us a little while ago, but then we'll think about whether there were some tribal people who were still suspicious of these outsiders. In less than a month's time, they had come back to the outside with an invitation for us to go back to the Alka Indians. We arrived there on October 8th, 1958, and spent almost two months with Dayuma's family. She saw her mother for the first time in more than 10 years. She had the joy of telling them about the living God in heaven and his 
Son, there's still a minority group who have their questions about us. There's still the one that says, oh, they're devils, all three of them, including Dayuma. There's the mother who says, oh, they'll just spear us like the other, they'll kill us like the other foreigners have done. They aren't really our friends, they're just pretending, which fits very well into the Alka pattern. And so there's still a minority group among Dayuma's related family group of about 50 Alkas. There's still the downriver group. It's their turn to spear the group that we live with. We have no friendly contact with them. There's been no groundwork laid. And it can only be laid as Christian people continue to pray as they have been. And we're so thankful for all the prayer that's been behind this project. Ecuadorian missionary Rachel Saint there talking about her friend Dayuma. Well, our time is coming to an end, but first let me thank you for letting us come along with you. Maybe as you uh, drove to work or did some jogging, maybe at home or at the office. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org for more talks, videos, and other resources. More Gateway to Joy programs, for instance, at elizabethelliot.org. Patty listens to the podcast through Audible. She writes, Elizabeth Elliot is an outstanding teacher. She is biblical, clear, and humble. She's my all-time favorite teacher. These recordings are a treasure. Well, thank you, Patty. Well, until next time, may God remind you each and every day that you're loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms 